Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Greg Bonson is a Christian apologist, and in a lecture series, uh, he starts off with this illustration. He says, imagine you're put in a room, and there's only one other man in there, but he has a gun. And so there's two ways you can handle this situation. You can try to dodge every bullet that this man is shooting at you, or you can try to disarm the gunman, and, and essentially, then you could use the gun against him. And so he chooses, when, when he's talking about his apologetic method, the way he defends the faith, uh, he wants to try to disarm the gunman rather than try to dodge all the different bullets that are shot at him. And so we'll talk a little bit about that strategy today. So this sort of builds, uh, this episode sort of builds on the last two episodes. And I, I've, my foundation verse here is Proverbs 1 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, am I getting a little bit off track with this beginnings series? Uh, With this episode, maybe just a little. (laughs) But we've talked a lot about worldviews the last two episodes, and so this is sort of some practical applications to to how this may affect like those daily conversations you have uh, with people you work with that have all different kinds of worldviews. So I think, uh, you know, my prayer is hopefully this will be helpful to the Christian community, and then if you are listening to this and you're not a Christian and you hold one of these other worldviews, maybe at least it helps you think about a few things. Now, in no way am I like completely you know, making all the arguments and all, and handling all the different things with these worldviews. I'm just sort of pointing out a, a few areas that you may want to explore if you know someone who, who thinks like this, or hopefully you can kind of recognize uh, general worldviews, and then it gives you some direction on where to go. Uh, overall, I just want people to learn how to think like a Christian, and I am still, you know, obviously we're all still learning. So I'm still learning to to think through these issues as well. But I want to think biblically. I want to think the way God wants me to think. So, uh, you know, another thing that I've, that I've posed here over the last few episodes is in order to know anything, you must start with the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. God is the creator of all things. He is sovereign over all things. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, talking about Jesus says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all all things hold together. So uh, I've talked a lot about atheist versus Christianity. Atheists know things. They, they, they don't believe in God, but they know things. They, they follow laws of logic. They can be good moral people. They, they know about these objective moral standards in society. They can conduct great scientific experiments, but they are assuming the uniformity of nature, which is something that is God-given. A random chance universe cannot account for uniformity of nature. And so the reason atheists know these things and can do these things is because they are created in God's world. They are created in God's image. So everybody must borrow from the Christian worldview in order to try to make sense of theirs. So that's what I was talking about last week. A quote I mentioned from Greg Bonson is, the proof of the Christian worldview is that without it, you could not prove anything. So 
again, kind of a deep concept to think about. And so just just ponder that uh, in your own free time. <laughs> so today, some practical tips for defending your faith. Now, there are many different apologetic approaches. A- a- apologetics means defending you know, why you believe what you believe, uh, giving a reason for the hope that w- that is within you. That's First Peter 3.15. And so there's many different approaches. Um, some people will give scientific evidence or historical evidence. Uh, I've done, you know, some of these episodes in, in the past uh, talking about the resurrection and, and the, um, the historical, you know, proofs for the Bible and the reliability of the way it's been transmitted through the centuries. So there's there's different approaches, um, and this this idea of this presuppositional apologetic approach that I've talked about with Cornelius Van Til and Greg Bonson, uh, Jason Lyle, uh, that's another approach. Now, there is a little bit of a division here in Christianity. Some people think that you should only do presuppositional presuppositional apologetics no matter what, and nothing else will do. Um, And and I I am not that hardcore, I guess. I I can see where other things have their place. So uh, one guy that is is not a, you know, total presuppositional apologist is Greg Kokel, and he has a really good book called Tactics. And tactics is basically learning how to ask great questions. He 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 has what's what he calls the Columbo technique. Columbo is a TV detective, and just kept asking questions until he you know until he figured out the mystery. So, um, Greg Kokel tactics that is an excellent book. Sort of teaches you how to think through some of these issues. Uh, but he himself is not a a specific you know presuppositional apologist. But he there there is a place for it. And then there's also a place for giving, you know, historical evidence, things like that. Most of the material from today's episode will be based on a lecture series given by Greg Bonson. So it's it's roughly like a 15-hour series. It's for free on YouTube. It's 21 uh, YouTube videos. They're all around like 40, 45 minutes. And so I'll leave a link to that whole playlist in the episode notes. So if if you are really interested in in learning more about this, that is a fantastic series. I've listened to it maybe three or four times over the course of the last few years. And so a lot of the information is coming from that. If you have questions, you can email me, bearchristianity at gmail.com. And I'm on Instagram at the real bear martin or Twitter at bear for the number four Christos. Bear for Christos. And this episode of Bear Christianity is brought to you by The One Upper. Are your life stories and personal experiences better than everyone else's? Do you waste time pretending to listen all the while searching for an opportunity to interrupt and share a better story? Well, not anymore. Introducing The One Upper. The One Upper is an app which allows you to pre-record up to 100 stories. Anytime you are listening to someone else and you know you have a better story, just relax. With the One Upper app, you can send them your story later. They will receive an alert on their phone to listen to your One Upper. What if they don't listen, you ask? We're way ahead of you. Using our patented pompous technology, they will not be able to perform any task on their phone until they listen to your story and respond with a positive text. Bear Christianity listeners receive three free months when they use the coupon code, wait till you hear this. The One Upper, helping others know you're better one story at a time.
When defending the faith, there there's a, a concept that has been really helpful for me. Our job is 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So our job is to honor the Lord and in, in giving a reason for why we believe what we believe. And so we can present you know strong evidence we can prevent uh, we can present you know strong arguments to defend the faith but the results are not our responsibility 1 Corinthians 3 6 through 8 this is Paul talking he Paul says i planted apollos watered but god gave the growth so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only god who gives the growth he who plants and he who waters are one so Greg Kokel mentions this verse and and he talks about, you know, I just want to be when when I'm talking with someone who's not a Christian, I want to ask those proper questions. You know, he talks about the Colombo technique. I want to get them thinking about why they believe what they believe. And and so in that conversation, if that doesn't lead to them becoming a Christian right then and there, he still says, I can walk away from that knowing that I've done my part, and I can trust God to work in the in the heart of that person. The Holy Spirit can work in their heart and, and lead them to salvation. But we shouldn't get frustrated when we share our faith or when we defend our faith if, if that person does not you know, become a Christian right then and there. Our job is to just be faithful and and give a reason for the hope that that is within us and trust the results to God. So I started out with this illustration by Greg Bonson about dodging the bullets versus disarming the gunman. So let me give you an example. When when he says we're talking about dodging bullets, an example of a bullet would be you're talking to a non-believer and they say, you know, what about God ordering the killing of those Canaanites in the Old Testament? Or what about the contradictions in the Bible? Those those would be bullets. And so there's two ways to handle that. You can try to dodge those. You can say, well, well, here's what, you know, open your Bible and and you know, here's what this means and here and try to explain it all. But what is likely going to happen is the non-believer doesn't want to believe in God. And so they will come up with anything possible to uh, you know, make you have to explain that. Then you explain that. Then they, well, you know, I, I still have a problem with this. And they, they're going to keep finding problems. And so you can try to dodge all these bullets, but uh, sometimes that's not as effective as disarming the gunman. So to disarm the gunman, here's how that would work. It's the same question. The the non-believer says, what about God killing all those Canaanites in the Old Testament? Well, if they're an atheist, you could say, what's the problem in an atheist worldview with killing a bunch of people? What, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the issue? Um, so depending on their worldview, you, you have to challenge them on that. That is disarming them versus just trying to simply dodge all the bullets that they're going to shoot at you. So to disarm the gunman, so to speak, uh, you, you have to try to expose their worldview for its weaknesses. And our worldview, just to, to remind you, is built up upon presuppositions. Jason Lyle, a Christian scientist, he defines presuppositions this way, our most basic beliefs about reality. They are the rules of interpretation that we assume at the outset before any evidence is investigated. 
So when when we come to these discussions with you know uh, us being a Christian and discussing things with a a non-believer, there is no neutrality. You you can't just assume neutral ground and look at the facts because our presuppositions are going to determine how we interpret those facts. And so there's no neutral ground. That neutrality is a myth. Greg Bonson says, remember two things when you are speaking to a non-believer about, and he's talking about neutrality here. He says, they are not, meaning they are not neutral. And number two, you shouldn't be. And so you should always keep worldviews in mind. Some Bible verses to support this, Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. He's not talking about neutrality here. He's not saying, well, if you're not with me, you could just, you know, you just do your own thing. No, he says, if you're not with me, you are against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So that that is, there, there are they are against one another. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh, that, that the flesh here is talking about sinful man, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So it's not just neutral. It is hostile towards God. It is an enemy. And so there's no neutral ground. There's no peaceful middle ground that, that you can try to come to. So when you're talking to a non-believer, you must force them to defend their own worldview. And a good way to to do this is just constantly think about this question internally. Now, you don't want to just be like, why, 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 why? But you, you want to ask them, how do you know that? And so if you're thinking about that question, that will that will help you ask proper questions. How do you know that? And so you know, I, I talked the last few episodes, I've talked about atheists, you know, when they say, you know, killing people is bad in the Bible. How do you know that that's a bad thing in your worldview? What is good and bad in an atheist worldview? So if you keep that question in mind, how do you know? How do you know that? That that will help you ask good questions. And so when you're when you're talking to a non-believer, you want to do an internal critique, is what Greg Bonson calls it, an internal critique of their worldview. You want to try to step into their worldview and look around and see where the the weaknesses are. And so this this comes by asking good questions. Again, read Tactics by Greg Kokel. You'll you'll learn to to ask really good questions. Now, you're not asking questions like the the non-believers asking us like what about God killing the Canaanites in in the Bible? No, you want to ask deeper questions about their worldview. So those those questions may come later. But the first questions you should be asking is you're trying to understand what they believe, and then you are going to expose weaknesses in that, again, because every worldview has to borrow from the Christian worldview in order to make sense of their own. So you're you're trying to find where they're either borrowing from the Christian worldview or where their worldview falls apart. Greg Bonson says, keep your opponent talking and they will hang themselves. So you you are just... You're asking good questions, trying to understand what they believe, and and you and you're looking for. Greg Bonson says four things. I've shortened it in this episode to three. The last one is preconditions of intellig- intelligibility, and we've talked a lot about that with like you know the laws of logic and objective moral values. We've talked a lot about that in previous episodes. So um, so what I'm going to do is list these other three things that you should be looking for in these conversations, and I'm going to give you some worldview examples 
for each of them, okay? And so you'll you'll get it as we as we go along here. The first one is look for people being arbitrary in their beliefs. And so arbitrary would be like their personal opinion or their feelings. Um, they're, they're not appealing to facts or evidence or proof. It is just the way they feel. And so a, an easy one here, an easy worldview is relativism. So the claim is that all truth is relative. I have my truth. You have your truth. There is no absolute truth. And so that is arbitrary. That is just, I feel this way. And so therefore that is truth to me. So if they say there is no absolute truth, then you know you would ask, is that absolutely true? So you're you're exposing their worldview, the 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 arbitrariness of their worldview. They're just picking what they want to believe, and so that falls apart. It is it is self refuting. Now, as far as a so, so relativism would be kind of a secular worldview. Um, as far as a a a worldview that tries to link itself with Christianity in a way, uh, this this arbitrariness makes me think of the Latter-day Saints, the, the Mormons. And so there's, um, I'll, I'll probably do a series eventually on uh, on Mormonism because I've spent a lot of time, I've, I mean, I, I would estimate that I've spent maybe 30, 40 hours at least um, in direct conversations with either Mormon missionaries or, or Mormons that live in the area. And so I probably have the most direct conversation with Mormons. And so um, so I do speak with a you know some knowledge on this topic. but and I've also you know read all the the Mormon scriptures and all of that stuff. Um, so lots of time spent researching Mormonism. but just a, a quick thing here. Joseph Smith claimed he's the founder of Mormonism. He claimed to have a vision from God, uh, or God the Father and God the Son, and they told him that he was he was a prophet, a chosen prophet, and he was going to restore true Christianity, the true Church of Jesus Christ. Um, that all the you know, like Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists, um, in this vision, Jesus tells Joseph Smith that all of these their, their creeds are an abomination; they're all false. Um, so I, I've chosen you, Joseph Smith, to restore the true church. Now, um, the Book of Mormon is revealed to Joseph Smith. He he he's shown where these golden plates have been hidden in the ground, and these golden plates are are a record of ancient people in the on the North American continent. And these these plates were written in Reformed Egyptian. That's the language. And so uh, Joseph Smith is given the translation of these plates. And that becomes the Book of Mormon. Now, Joseph Smith was a convicted con man for looking into, uh, it's called a glass looker. So he has like this stone or piece of glass that he supposedly can look into and see where precious metals and uh, things like wells are are in the ground where people should dig. And so it it was a, a common con in that time, and Joseph Smith was convicted of that. And so that's that's before all this starts. So, you know, he finds these golden plates, these precious metal plates hidden in the ground, and uh, and then he uses this uh, peep stone. It's like a smooth, shiny, chocolate-covered, uh, chocolate-colored rock, and he, he puts that in the bottom of a hat, and he he looks into like this the top hat and covers it around his face so that there's there it's only dark. And then the translation 
to the Book of Mormon appears to Joseph. He calls it out, and someone in a in, on the other side of a sheet, so no, they can't see Joseph while he's doing this. Uh, somebody on the other side of the sheet is recording this down, and then they read back to Joseph what they wrote, and as long as that was correctly recorded, then the next line of translation appeared to Joseph uh, for the Book of Mormon. So that's how the Book of Mormon was translated. Now, I have seen this personally. I have visited a... Uh, a Latter-day Saint ward building, which is where they have like their Sunday services. And I have seen a picture on the wall of a young boy sitting at a table with golden plates and like, a, and pieces of paper. Like he, like Joseph is studying these plates to uh, come up with the translation. Joseph did not read Reformed Egyptian, so God gave him, line by line, the translation for the Book of Mormon. That, that's the story, okay? So he doesn't actually have to look at the plates. They are pointless. He cannot understand any of the symbols there. And so, you know, the story starts to fall apart a little bit. Also, Reformed Egyptian it has never been discovered to be a real language at all. We, we don't have any evidence of it. And then uh, where's the plates? Can we look at the plates? Well, Joseph said that God made him give the plates back. So there's, there's no uh, proof of these golden plates at all. So the basis of how they, you know, again, asking that question, how do you know Joseph Smith is a true prophet of God? How do you know the Book of Mormon should be considered scripture, you know, from God? Well, it, it there there is no evidence for it. The proof is in a verse in the Book of Mormon, Moroni 10, 4 and 5. This is at towards the very end of the Book of Mormon. And it says this, And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart and with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, ye may know the truth of all things. So, how do Latter-day Saints know truth? It is because they have prayed about it and the Holy Spirit told them that it's true. So the, the Latter-day Saint missionaries will ask you to read the Book of Mormon, which I have, and they will ask you to pray. And they, they, they are talking about this verse. If you pray with a sincere heart and with real intent and have faith in Christ, then God will show you that the Book of Mormon is true and that Joseph Smith is a true prophet. So when you talk to an LDS missionary, at the very end of the conversation, they will always bear their testimony. They will always say, you know, as I've heard a, a bunch of times, Barrett, I know Joseph Smith is a true prophet of the Lord. I know the Book of Mormon is, is, a, is truly from the Lord. Um, and this has been revealed to me by the Holy Spirit. So that is their ultimate test of truth, but it is arbitrary because I have told them, guys, I've read the Book of Mormon. I have prayed and said, God, I want to believe you. I want to believe what's true about you. And and God told me that Joseph Smith is not a true prophet. He's a false prophet. And the Holy Spirit said, the Book of Mormon is not scripture. Do not believe it. So that is the message I got from the Holy Spirit. So it, you know, 
it's arbitrary. And so the only thing they'll say to that is, well, basically, I must not have asked with a sincere heart. I must have been doubting all along. I don't want the Book of Mormon to be true. And so therefore, you know, I don't think it's true. So my heart's not sincere. I didn't ask with real intent and I didn't have faith in Christ. So it's, it's an arbitrary test for truth. So the first thing you're looking for in, in conversations with non-believers would be arbitrariness. What sort of truth claims are they making? The, the next one would be inconsistency, inconsistency. Um, an example of a worldview with this for me is Buddhism. The goal in Buddhism, uh, first off, Buddhism does not have any sort of uh, supreme being or God, Okay. So the goal is to achieve nirvana, which is the end of suffering. And so the thought in Buddhism is that we suffer because we desire. If we did not desire anything, we would not suffer. So if you're stuck in traffic and you're trying to get to a meeting and you get angry, it's because you are desiring to be on time for that meeting. If you didn't desire to be on time for that meeting, you wouldn't be angry and you wouldn't be suffering sitting in traffic. So that's the general concept there. Uh, Buddhism was, was started, founded, however you want to call it, by a guy named Siddhartha Gautama. He was a prince, and the story, you know, it varies a little bit, but the story goes something like this. He had a very easy life as a prince in the palace, and then as he became a young man, he was exposed to the, the suffering that other people were going through, sickness and disease and death, and this troubled him greatly. So he was wanting to search for a, a cure, essentially, for this problem. So he, he tries some different things. He went into these ascetic practices where he was denying his, his flesh lots of different things, uh, nearly starved to death, and did not find resolution from suffering in that respect. And so eventually he decided to sit under a tree and meditate until he gained enlightenment. And so the number of days varies depending on the the Buddhist tradition. Um, I read just in a, a quick search, I read that it took 49 days, it took 40 days, it took seven days, and it took one day a night, but then he meditated another 49 after that. So I, I read all of those within like 15 minutes. So it varies. Uh, but anyway, he sat under this tree until he gained enlightenment, and then you know he sat there long enough, and then he reached nirvana. Says who? Well, he did. He he just says that he reached nirvana. So there's little, there's some arbitrariness there as well. But anyway, the Buddha just means the enlightened one. So anybody who reaches nirvana could be called the you know Buddha as well. So Buddha is not the uh, like he's a he's a uh, leader I guess or someone to look up to in Buddhism, but he's not God. They're they're not worshiping Buddha. Now. How do you know that? That's our basic question. Um, you know, when when it comes to looking at Buddhism, I, I think this whole, you know, you shouldn't desire anything and therefore there's no suffering, that is just an inconsistent thought. After the Buddha becomes enlightened, what does he do? He he travels the world spreading the message of Buddhism, of of gaining enlightenment. That right there implies a desire that other people would know how to be enlightened. So so he has not gotten rid of all desires and, and achieved nirvana. Um, also, this idea of karma, where our decisions in this life 
will affect the next life. And supposedly, the the better decisions you make in one life affects your next one. So think about someone that is very wealthy and powerful in this life. According to this law of karma, that means they probably would have made really good decisions in the previous life. Now, let's apply this to someone like Hitler. So powerful, wealthy, you know, all that stuff, but makes horrible, horrible decisions. It just lives an evil, wicked life. Lots of bad karma if we're going to step into that worldview. So it, 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 it seems like it doesn't carry over. There's no rollover um, in your decisions. If you choose in this life to make really good decisions, selfless decisions, and you have a lot of good karma, then in the next life, it's like you don't remember that there was a reward for making those good decisions. It it doesn't carry over. And so, you know, Hitler would have a lots of bad karma and go to the, you know, the bottom of the karma chain in in his next life. So that that just seems very inconsistent to me that you're that you're, you know, struggling through this wheel of life, but if there's no carryover, then I don't know how you make any progress. The next worldview that I want to mention when it comes to being inconsistent is Islam. So Islam was started roughly 600 years after Christ. The prophet Muhammad claims that he got some visions from an angel while meditating in a cave. And so he's supposedly the greatest and final prophet of Allah. And uh, here, this is what's key. Muhammad thought he understood Christianity. He did not. And so so when, when Muhammad, you know, writes things in the Quran or or he didn't write them he you know it was it was all oral at first but when Muhammad is giving the Quran he's he's talking about certain things like he says the people of the book that would be Christians he mentions the Torah which is the first five books of the Old Testament uh so he's talking really about Jews there the Torah and the people of the gospel meaning Christians um, and so he he doesn't mention Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He, he just it's called the Gospels. Um, and so the the people of the Gospels, the Jews and the Christians, the Quran actually tells them to evaluate the Prophet Muhammad's teachings based on the Torah and the Gospels. Let me give you some some verses from the Quran. So in the Quran, the the chapters are called surahs. Surah, S-U-R-A-H, Surah, and then like uh, 2946 would, would be like a chapter in verse, okay? So Surah 2946 tells Muslims to say this to Christians, okay? We believe in what has been revealed to us and what has been revealed to you. Our God and your God is only one, and to him we fully submit. So here, this verse says that Allah and the Christian God is the same God, okay? Now, Muslims today, if you talk to them, they will not say that. They will say, the Bible's been corrupted, your God is a false God, they reject the Trinity, they reject that Jesus is God in the flesh, they reject that Jesus was raised from the dead, they reject you know, a lot of those things. But here we're told that we believe in what has been revealed to us and what has been revealed to you. So see, Muhammad thinks he's being consistent with, with the Bible. But he's not. Surah 3, 3 says this, He has revealed to you, O prophet, that is Muhammad, the book in truth, confirming what came before it as he revealed the Torah and the gospel. So here the Quran is supposedly confirming the Torah and the gospels. 
All right. In Surah 1827, Muslims are told this, recite what has been revealed to you from the book of your Lord. None can change his words, nor can you find any refuge besides him. So here, here's the problem, and this is there's a great video, YouTube video on this by David Wood, and it's called the Islamic Dilemma. I'll leave a link uh, in the notes. About eight minutes. It, it it goes through so many more verses of the Quran and shows these these inconsistencies. But basically, the Quran contradicts the clear teaching of the Bible. Yet in the Quran, people are told to compare the the Quran to the Bible and it and and Allah is saying this is all consistent this is all my word and and the verse I just read Surah eighteen twenty seven tells us that Allah's words cannot be changed so Muhammad when he first gave the Quran he is thinking that he's consistent with the Christian message he's thinking that they all are going to agree with one another but he doesn't know the Bible. And so as time goes on and and people started evaluating what the Bible said and what the Quran said, there's there is complete disagreement in a lot of things. And so the Muslim workaround for this is they have to say that well the Bible's been corrupted. But in the Quran, the Quran tells us to compare the Torah and the Gospels to the Quran, and they're all consistent. So you see how Muslims are being inconsistent in saying that the Bible is corrupted, you know, people have changed the Bible, wicked men have changed the Bible. Wait a second. The Quran says that the, that Allah has revealed the Torah and the Gospels and the Quran, and his words cannot be changed. See how that's inconsistent? Uh, the third and final one is, what are the consequences of the worldview? So these three questions I've discussed today, is there is there some arbitrariness in their worldview? Are there inconsistencies in their worldview? And what are the consequences if we fully accept their worldview? So let's talk about those consequences. Um, the first one I want to mention is Hinduism. Hinduism and Buddhism are often confused. Um, there, there are some similarities. There's actually a lot of similar words that are in both of those. Um, so, and 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 both of them are so variable. There are so many different beliefs within each of them. So, it is extremely difficult to narrow it all down. So, just a disclaimer to start out with: there are some Hindus who may not agree with what I'm going to say. Hindus believe um, because it is it is wide ranging. Uh, I, I was listening to one Hindu. I don't know what they're called, honestly. They're they're a priest or whatever you want to call it, a Hindu expert. And he was telling people, he said, some people come to me and ask, you know, I don't want to, I don't believe that there is a supreme God being. I don't want to believe in that type of God. And he said, well, instead, just find the God that's in, you know, those are the people around you. They they are they are gods in themselves. And so you can you can look to them. You you know, so it's just it's so malleable. You can just kind of make it whatever you want it to be. Um the Eastern religions in general, have the, it's just a different way of thinking. And so um, I just don't have the time to jump into all of that in this episode, but just realize that from the start. Hinduism is a pantheistic religion. Uh, so it's one of these where it's, there's spiritual oneness in everything. All is God and, and all is one. There is no material uh, universe. Everything that's material is actually just what they call maya, M-A-Y-A, maya. Uh, which is means illusion. So all of the the physical, uh, everything physical is an illusion. 
in Hinduism. And so you're on this wheel of life. And again, there's karma. You have, have good karma and bad karma. But your goal in Hinduism is to reach moksha, M-O-K-S-H-A, moksha. So this gets you off the wheel of life and you become one with the universe, one with, you know, you're one again with this spiritual oneness and you are now free from suffering and any physical constraints. Um, in, in what happens during moksha, there's, there's uh, one of their holy books is called the Bhagavad Gita. And in chapter 2, verse 15, there's a, a commentary on this that is really well known. And it says this, quote, The soul is compared to a drop of water and liberation to its merging into the vast ocean, which represents the supreme soul or this spiritually one God. According to the Advaita schools, the soul and God are equal in every respect, and liberation entails realization of one's godhood. Thus, one's mistaken sense of individuality is dissolved, and one merges into the all-pervading supreme. Think about that again. So when you reach moksha, this is what happens. It says, quote, thus, one's mistaken sense of individuality is dissolved, and one merges into the all-pervading supreme. So the, the common thought here, the thing you'll, you can you'll, you'll read over and over again, is that it's like a drop of water uh, you know, going back into the ocean when you reach moksha. You are now at one again with this spiritual supreme. Okay, now, what's the, the consequences of that worldview? Well, it just says that, that once you reach moksha, your, indivi- your, your mistaken sense of individuality, meaning the, the thought, the mistaken thought that you're actually an individual person, and I, I'm using the term person not in a physical sense, but in a philosophical sense, that you are individual. You have your thoughts and, and other you know, things have their thoughts. No, in Hinduism, it's all one. So when you reach moksha, you lose your individuality. You become one with the spirit, you know, supreme being again. So here's what, here's what cannot happen then. You can't say, I have achieved moksha because there's no I anymore. There's no individual person. So when you reach moksha, you actually lose any sense of individuality. So you personally do not achieve moksha. You can't because you're not an individual anymore. So you you lose that. If you if you are not an individual, you you can't your the thoughts you had in an, as an individual no longer exist, so to speak. Um, I know that's kind of weird, but hopefully that that comes across. Um, also, the consequences of Hinduism: there is no evil. There there's no good or evil. Everything is an illusion. Um, rape, murder, you know, f- physical acts of wickedness. It's just all an illusion. And so you you shouldn't be down about that. It, it's it's all an illusion. You need to actually escape those physical constraints and um, and become one with the universe again. Another consequence of Hinduism is who cares? I mean, who cares? In, in Hinduism, everybody eventually gets there. We all get off this wheel of life and become one with the with the universe again. And so it doesn't matter if you have a, a bad life, you'll you know, or you make bad decisions. I mean, you're you're gonna eventually get there. 
And so, you know, who cares? There, there's, there. I think it, it just loses its point. There's no sense of individuality um, in the end. Anyway, we just become one with this spirit being again. Honestly, when you think deep about it, there's no purpose. Um, this spiritual being, like the Force in Star Wars. I mean, you know, who cares? Now, a few secular worldviews when it comes to let's get in that worldview and see where the consequences of accepting that worldview take us. Uh, One would be an egoist. So an egoist is all about personal pleasure. Everybody has the right to do what they want to do, whatever they get pleasure in doing. This is has extremely bad consequences because if you fully accept that worldview, then what if somebody gets pleasure from rape, murder, molesting children? I mean, that's what they get pleasure from. So let you know, everybody has the right to seek out what they get pleasure from. So it 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 quickly breaks down. Now, in a utilitarian worldview, that is that whatever is best for the most people is is what should be accepted. Now, this so this is where we get a lot of like dystopian books and novels and that type of thing where you have these like ideal communities, but then anybody with any kind of disease or birth defect or whatever is is done away with. It makes me think of uh the movie the and the book The Giver. Anyway, anybody with any imperfections are just done away with because it's for the good of the community. They're they're a a stress on on resources for the community, and so let's just do away with them because that's what that's what's best for most people. Um, you get socialism out of this. You know what are the consequences of a utilitarian worldview? Well, certain groups could be seen as undesirable or bad for everyone else. So think about this from a Christian perspective. What if Christianity is bad for humanity? Lots of people make this argument that because of Christianity, we have racism and stuff like that. Ridiculous arguments. I can't get into it right now. But um, you know, what if Christianity is deemed bad? Then therefore, it's best for the majority of people if we get rid of Christians. Uh, Hitler is an example of this. It's best for the world if we get rid of these terrible Jews. You know that that's Hitler's mindset. Um, also, what we're hearing a lot of today is that our world is too populated. Eventually, we're not going to have the resources to support all these people, and so it's best for mankind in general if we depopulate the world. Now, what I find very interesting, so so the consequences of this is that a lot of people die, okay? Um, I could throw this worldview in the inconsistent um, section as well, because what's funny to me is that all these people that are promoting the depopulation of the world somehow think themselves too valuable to be one of the depopulated. And so I'm like, if you think there's too many people in this world, then you got you got some control over one life there. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it just <laughs> drives me crazy to hear people talk this way. So anyway, hopefully there are some worldview examples that will lead conversations and maybe help you recognize where someone is coming from and to ask them some questions and and hopefully point them in the direction of a biblical worldview being the only one that can sustain itself. Because this is such a... Uh, like overview type episode where I'm just throwing out a few ideas here and there, and I haven't been able to back up um, some of the things that I've said. If you have any questions or further arguments or whatever, 
email me, bearchristianity@gmail.com. I love getting emails from listeners. Next week in this beginnings series, I hope to get into Genesis and, and start walking through Genesis, why I believe, what I believe about creation and what the Bible says about it. Our closing verse here, in thinking about all these different worldviews and defending the Christian faith, 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world?